This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Jwalane Tulo, Tracy Boomgaard and Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Guinea-Bissau's former prime ministers will compete in a runoff to become the West African nation's next president. South Africa gripped by retail fever ahead of Black Friday. In economics, a United Nations food expert warns that Zimbabwe is on the brink of man-made starvation. And in sport... Collins Injera will not be a part of the Kenyan squad that travels out uh, to the season opening leg of the World Rugby 7 Series in Dubai next week. But right now, let's cross on over to the news desk. Here's Jwalani Tullo with your latest news bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. South Africa's First Lady, Dr. Tsepo Motsipe, says the engraved inequalities in the country need to be addressed speedily to stamp out malnutrition and improve health equity for children. Speaking at the opening of a three-day child priority conference at the Northwest Province University in Pochastrum, Dr. Motsipe maintained that the social and economic challenges engulfing the country has had a negative ramification on children, particularly in the rural areas. This is as the World Bank last year deemed South Africa the world's most unequal society, estimating that the top 10% owned 70% of the nation's assets, Motsepe explains. The many social challenges that continue to plague us, unemployment, poverty, violence, both in the home and in the streets, are most acutely on our children. We cannot significantly improve health of the children in their most basic needs of food, shelter, and safety if many of the factors that influence us are not in place, which sadly remains, as I said, to be a most unequal society. <coughs> Extreme poverty. A high court in Zambia has sentenced two men to 15 years in jail after they were caught having sex in 2017. Zambia is a conservative country and same-sex relationships are frowned upon and homosexual acts are illegal. The court heard that Jafta Chabata and Stephen Samba booked themselves into a lodge in Kapiri Moboshi in central Zambia. In handing down sentence, the court said the two men had gone against the order of nature, the legal phrase used to describe gay sex. Youth in Algeria protesting against a presidential election candidate reportedly scuffled with riot police in an eastern town on Wednesday. This comes as pressure is building between the ruling elite and its opponents before this, the contested December vote. Peaceful mass protests have, been, have taken place weekly this year across Algeria, dislodging the veteran president Abdelaziz Bouteflika in April and continuing to demand that the rest of the old guard of leaders step aside. Both protesters and police have mostly avoided any violence since the start of the mass demonstrations in February. Protesters oppose the election to replace Bouteflika, saying it cannot be fair as long as his allies retain positions of power and the army plays a role in politics. 
The European Parliament in Strasbourg has declared a climate emergency. The non-binding resolution was adopted in preparation for the UN's Climate Change Summit in Madrid next week. The European Green Party said it was time to move from declarations to action to meet Europe's commitments under the Paris Agreement in 2016. China has branded the U.S. malicious after President Donald Trump signed into law a bill that seeks to support the autonomy of Hong Kong. Beijing has said it will retaliate. The new law requires Washington to monitor Beijing's actions in Hong Kong. The BBC's Stephen McDonald has the story. The Chinese government has ramped up its warnings, now promising these firm countermeasures. But the language, you know, we get a lot of fiery language in these diplomatic stouches, but saying that, you know, this is extremely abominable and harbours absolutely sinister intentions. So obviously the Chinese government is not happy and has called in the US ambassador for the second time in a week. And the message was passed on to him that the US should change its mind and back down so as to avoid further deteriorating the relationship. I'll be back with headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tudor. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Guinea-Bissau's two former prime ministers will compete in a runoff to become the West African nation's next president after incumbent Jose Mario Vaz failed to advance to the second round of voting. Domingos Somiers Pereira topped the country's presidential election with 40% of the votes and Umaro Sissoko Mbalo uh, came second with 28%. The two will face off in the second round on December 29th. Guinea-Bissau has a long history of military coups and political assassinations since winning independence from Portugal in 1974. For more on the vote and what it means for the country, Channel Africa spoke to Pauline Maurice Tupane, West Africa researcher at the Institute for Security Studies. We have two, two primary, former prime ministers of the two main political parties in Guinea-Bissau, but they have different professional political and trade experience. Domingo Simosfera has a long, long political experience within the PAGC, but also within the state apparatus. He was twice minister um, in 2002 and 2003. Uh, but also in 2004, he was also an advisor of the um, president of the uh, Republic uh, in Guinea-Bissau. Sure. But also, the most important, he had uh, an international career when he was an executive secretary of the uh, Portuguese-speaking country um, between 2008 and 2012. Sisoko Mbalo has also um, political experience and know a little bit about the, the functioning of the state in Guinea-Bissau. He was a prime minister between 2016 and 2018, but also he's um, a general within the Guinea-Bissau army. Now talk to us, uh, Maurice, about the role that young voters played in this election to make sure that President Jose Mario Vaz was voted out of power. Um, in Guinea-Bissau, uh, young represent approximately 60% of the population and they are under the age of 25. But um, I think they are the, the one who uh, 
are the most effective uh, with the recurrent political crisis in uh, Guinea-Bissau and instability. But we have to notice that um, uh, Jose Mario Valls has gone through this election with two factors that weaken his um, position. He's um, seen as the main um, the main responsible of the current uh, political instability in Guinea-Bissau since uh, 2015, but he, he didn't also succeed to have the support of the big party in Guinea-Bissau. He tried to have the support of the PRS, but uh, unfortunately for him, he didn't uh, get the, the support of this party. Has uh, President came, Jose Mario Vaz said anything yet in terms of uh, the outcome of uh, the election? One of of the main advisor uh, talk about um, consultation uh, with the, some political actor to try to uh, decide uh, on who uh, Jose Mario Vaz will support in the second round, but they, they didn't uh, take yet the decision. And uh, just finally, what are the political and economic challenges that are facing uh, Guinea-Bissau citizens at the moment, would you say, Maurice? The main challenge is the stability. Decades of uh, political instability have made it uh, difficult uh, to implement public policy uh, in Guinea-Bissau, and the level of human development in Guinea-Bissau remains low. In 2018, the country ranked uh, 177 out of 188 on the United Nations Development Program Human Development Index. Uh, the, the other challenge is the um, stability of the, the institution um, in Guinea-Bissau, mainly the, the government. We see between 2015 and 2009, we see almost eight prime ministers nominated by the uh, president, current president, Jose Mario Valls. And the other one is the fight against drug trafficking in, in Guinea-Bissau. Uh, drug trafficking is the, uh, one of the, the main factors of instability in the, in the country. And that was Pauline Maurice Tupane, the West African researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, on the line from Dakar in Senegal, talking to Kumbelo Munjelele. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlet to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. The International Monetary Fund, IMF, has given Malawi 40 million U.S. dollars in direct budget support, the first time this has happened since the plunder of public financial resources named the Cashgate scandal six years ago. This after Malawi last week passed the IMF test as the fund's executive board of directors 
approved resources to support reconstruction efforts after the devastating cyclone Adai. The board also met to complete the second and third reviews of the three-year extended credit facility ECF uh, program with Malawi, an arrangement which is worth 112 million US dollars. George Mhango filed this report from Blantyre in Malawi. The budgetary support approval to Malawi by the IMF has come at a time when Malawi is said to be focused on a growth path to take advantage of the macroeconomic stability that continue to prevail in the country. The disbasement is also a sign that IMF has faith in the economic management and policies which have resulted in the continued strengthening of the economy in the middle of negative shocks and vulnerabilities. Reserve Bank Governor Daliso Kabambe said the support will ensure that the country's macroeconomics are well anchored, leading to a stable exchange rate. He also expressed hope that this will catalyze other development partners to open their taps for direct budget support and other financing. He emphasized that Malawi is currently also investigating the viability of cryptocurrencies to deal with fraud and money laundering before its introduction. There is uh, a development that uh, uh, some private entities would wish to start uh, issuing what are called the cryptocurrencies, which run uh, side by side with the currencies that uh, the central banks you should recall that in as far as the Reserve Bank of Malawi law is concerned and the Malawi constitution is concerned, in the case of Malawi, the Reserve Bank of Malawi is mandated uh, with the responsibility of issue the legal tender uh, for this country. And we issue uh, various notes in line with the mandate of the constitution as well as various coins. But in this case, there is a global development where uh, private entities can issue their own crypto uh, currencies which can perform and function in a similar ways as uh, any other uh, currency that the central bank uh, would release. But President Peter Tariga has maintained that his government would deal with corruption in the public service, adding that he has financially empowered the anti-corruption bureau SCB in the current financial year. In the next five years, fight against corruption. I wish to reiterate my government stance on the fight against corruption. I maintain my zero tolerance policy against corruption, fraud, theft, and other economic crimes. We agree that we demonstrate sound economic management and delivered projects in the last five years. But this what my hands need to know. The government has improved and we have delivered more than one project because of putting government resources to public use instead of putting public sources in private pockets. By fighting corruption and this abuse of public resources, it is a continuing fight and a continuing fight. The past five years, government put in place measures aimed at enhancing accountability and transparency in public procurement and financial management system. Last year, Review the anti-corruption law to give the anti-corruption bureau more independence. In the next five years, we'll strengthen the law by, among others, enacting deterrent sentences to convicts of corruption and economic crime. Malawi's finance minister Joseph Maraveka was flanked by the Reserve Bank Governor Dalisoka Bambe and Secretary to the Treasury at the event called for efforts to deal with fraud as cause for Malawi to introduce cryptocurrencies grow. If you're not careful, even as government, 
we end up losing our taxes because there's an element of tax evasion. There's an element of money laundering there. So we need to closely monitor it. So I would say that at some point, we need to show that we deal with this matter. As I've said, we cannot assume it doesn't exist. It's there. And if you don't discuss it, understand what are the challenges and its benefits, and see how the monetary authorities, as well as the authorities like ourselves, how this impacts on both monetary policy as well as the fiscal policy. Economists have alluded that this means that cooperating and development partners now have trust and confidence in working with Malawi and thereby supporting its development efforts. In the work of revelations of the public plunder of public resources at Capitol Hill, known as Cashgate, exposed in October 2013, donors suspended direct budget support to Malawi. Instead, the bilateral and multilateral donors channeled their assistance through some international and government organizations. Before suspension of direct budget support, donors were putting up to 30% in Malawi's recurrent budget and at least 85% of the development budget. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blanta. As the world makes strides in attaining its Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, stakeholders are concerned that some goals still lag behind due to a number of factors such as prioritization by those with power in their position. Among the key components that still at uh, interval in terms of progression is sexual and reproductive health rights uh, under SDGs. Number three, which some young people in Zambia and South Africa feel little is being done to push for its attainment, as Arthur Sikopo reports. Sexual and reproductive health rights, simply put, are one's rights to seek for information and access various services around sexuality and reproduction without being denied or discriminated against. Zofwa Sampa, in her mid-twenties, was born HIV positive and later in life suffered from tuberculosis and meningitis that left her blind. She is however not deterred by her condition as today she runs her own organization focusing on young people like her meaning those with disabilities and those living with HIV or both. She bemoans society's discrimination and looking down upon people with disabilities. Hence, she set up her organization with a view to help her peers considering what she went through at the hands of a trained medical personnel. I remember there was a situation when I was working with an organization in 2016 and uh, we were distributing some condoms. So I kept a few in my hand and they said, you can't keep this, how are you going to, you don't even know how to read the instructions. That was a qualified nurse. I was imagining a situation of somebody walked into that, or that clinic or office and wondered what was going on. So for me, I feel we don't have access. And the one year I worked with that organization, not once did I ever see a young person who's differently able to come and access condoms. And as a banda, another youth is concerned with the marginalization of those in correctional facilities or prisons where sexual and reproductive health rights is concerned. Because they've been neglected for a long time, many of them are ignorant to issues to do with SRHR. They don't know the rights that they have, the, sex, the sexual reproductive health rights that they have, and especially those in rural areas. All this came from a two-day sexual and reproductive health rights regional training held in Lusaka, Zambia. Patrick Mleche of Section 27 of South Africa hopes that such gatherings between countries could be encouraged for building a healthier and a goal-oriented continent, further 
calling for inclusion of young people in planning around sexual and reproductive health rights. So clearly there is a gap between the information generation and the decision making because uh, one of the things that I can tell you is that young people we, we, we do what we call is a malicious compliance where we say young people need to be seen not to be heard. So old people will get together and then make these policies. The question who are you making these policies for if then you are not making the, if you're making the policies for young people but without young people then that is a challenge. One of the challenges that we we are faced with right now in South Africa is the issues of places and places, old men dating young girls. I was addressing the University of UK as a 10 students other day, telling them that how bad is it this particular phenomenon. But then young people ask me that, um, and then if we remove these places, what are we putting in place? Autom automatically tells you that uh, young people actually there is a serious pushback from their side. Meanwhile, Pakama Africa, the organizers of the sexual and reproductive health rights training, says it plans to have more of such as a way of sharing information among countries. Georgina Mabezere is programs and communications in charge. We make follow-ups with the people that we invite for our workshops to see what they are doing, whether they've been able to implement some of the things discussed in the workshop or if they need help to be able to implement those things. Among the key aspects of sexual and reproductive health rights are sexually transmitted infections, female genital mutilation, adolescent pregnancy, family planning and contraception, and HIV-AIDS. The World Health Organization says every year an estimated 21 million girls aged between 15 to 19 years old and 2 million girls under 15 become pregnant in developing regions and Africa is among the top on the list. Approximately 16 million girls aged between 15 to 19 years old give birth in developing regions. Adolescent pregnancy remains a major contributor to maternal and child mortality and intergenerational cycles of ill health and poverty. Reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia, I'm Arthur Davis, Skopo. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLeg to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Um. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. 
With just hours to go as stores open their doors for Black Friday, consumers are already feeling the heat. With all the hype around Black Friday, one wonders if there are really massive deals or is it a scam to get consumers to spend their hard-earned cash just weeks before Christmas, forcing consumers to look to banks and financing institutions to keep them going. Wealth expert Gerald Mandiambira uh, advises consumers to be cautious before spending their money. There are some bargains, most definitely, but you need to choose wisely. I think Black Friday discounts in South Africa are not the same as in the rest of the world where mm. um, Black Friday represents a clearance of stock, where overseas, when they say Black Friday, nothing must be left in the shop sure. in the morning. Mm. Whereas here in South Africa, it's limited lines, so you need to keep an eye out for something you've already been tracking and you know there's a discount, um, and basically also try and focus on the online opportunities because those um, allow you to get deeper discounts because those um, stores do not have overhead. So online, I definitely think there's some discounts. Out in the streets, in the shops, be careful. You need to just um, think wisely and buy something. You've been tracking the price um, to make sure that you are definitely getting the real discount. Now, what are some of the things to avoid? I mean, we've been told about what it is that you should do. You know, um, one of the main uh, tips was to actually save, um, you know, for the bulk of the year so that when this day comes, you know, you've got coffers uh, for it. But what are some of the things that people should be avoiding tomorrow? Well, definitely you must avoid the FOMO syndrome where you just have a fear of missing out. Um, It is quite okay not to be participating in Black Friday for the main reason that you never save for it. So Mm. if you have FOMO syndrome, start saving for Black Friday 2020. But there's no reason for you to um, go out there and shop if you hadn't planned for it. Obviously, the economy is depressed and it is a good thing for people to go out and spend because it's good for the retailers, it's good for the economy, but yes, be wise, um, do it when you're prepared. Avoid carrying large amounts of cash because Mm. there's also a lot of people who are out to make their Friday very interesting by helping you uh, and relieving you of your money. So often what happens in a busy store where people are fighting for goods, Mm. um, someone comes to you and says, no, I work for the shop, let me help you, let me take your money to the cashier. Before you know it, the cashier is gone and the guy you spoke to never works in the mm, shop. Mm. So avoid cash online. Don't go onto strange websites. Go onto the websites that are tried and trusted because a lot of websites are, up, are opening as we speak. And uh, by this time tomorrow, probably they would have disappeared as well. So suppose one can say it's Black Friday across the board, right? <laughs> um, well, yes. Yeah, Definitely. yeah, yeah. Now, uh, Gerald, when we look at uh, the history of Black Friday, it seems to be um, quite a, a point of um, debate. You know, a lot of people saying that Africans should have nothing to do with Black Friday. Let's talk a little bit about um, Black Friday and the history thereof. Look, the history of Black Friday is quite simple. Um, normally, it was the last Friday of November after Thanksgiving, because Thanksgiving in the U.S. is um, you know, normally the last Wednesday of the year, it's a national holiday, and normally it was uh, it's seen as the beginning of the festive period, and for them it's where they actually start clearing out all their winter stock mm-hmm. and preparing for the summer stock, because remember in America and the UK, um, winter is about to end for them, sure. they're starting to get into that summer mood. Mm. And with the stores there, they literally clear out. Anything that's still in the store in the morning, they give it away. So... It was a day when you really could get, or it is a day when you will get really good bargains out there. Um, Mm -hmm. Because 
most of our major retailers in South Africa mm-hmm. are owned by the American company Walmart. We have started to take and adopt the Black Friday tradition simply because we are driven by the owners of those stores. Mm-hmm. So what they are doing often is that they're moving stocks to the U.S. and the U.K., sending it to South Africa, and that's how we enjoy our Black Friday. But it's really been driven by the development where South Africa, most of the big stores in South Africa, they're owned by one company. That one company is owned by the biggest mass retailer in the U.S., which is called the Walmart, and they're the ones who driven this Black Friday tradition, mm-hmm. which is starting to catch on across the board. Mm. Now, I know that uh, there are some people who've gone as far as taking the day off tomorrow so that they're able uh, to participate and get all the <laughs> bargains that they can. But, uh, Gerald, let me put you on the spot. Are you participating tomorrow? <laughs> Look, I wish I could take the day off. I wish I had enough money to spend on Black Friday. <laughs> no, I'm not taking the day off. I'm going to watch from the sidelines. I, yeah. um, I, I did say to my to my family, there's a few things we do need. Mm. So there's, a, there's groceries. I mean, mm. like, um, if you're preparing for the festive period, there's quite a lot of good discounts I've seen in the newspapers mm-hmm. around groceries. Those might be a good deal. And I remember I ran a marathon last month and I, I mm. damaged my shoes. And I said, that's the only thing I'll get, a pair of shoes. Yeah. So let's see how it goes tomorrow. Taking the whole day, I hope you've got enough money to keep you busy for eight hours. <laughs> for me, it will probably take 15 minutes and I'm done. And that was wealth expert Gerald Mwandiambira speaking to Zikona Miso. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Aburengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa. Rise. Channel Africa. From an African perspective. Now it's time for your latest news headlines. Here's Jolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African African perspective. perspective. 
Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, a high court in Zambia has sentenced two men to 15 years in jail after they were caught having sex in 2017. The European Parliament in Strasbourg has declared a climate emergency. And finally, China has branded the U.S. malicious after President Donald Trump signed into law a bill that seeks to support the autonomy of Hong Kong. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. South African breweries, the SAB, has launched a no-excuse domestic violence policy to assist staff who are victims of this type of crime with reporting the offence. According to the director of Carling Black Label, Grant Pereira, this policy is to create an environment where the reporting of this abuse is destigmatized and uh, contribute to a work environment where victims feel safe, can report confidentially and seek support when experiencing or recovering from domestic violence. More from Grant Pereira, director of Carling Black Label. In 2017, we launched as Carling Black Label the No Excuse for Women Abuse campaign. This campaign is a campaign aimed primarily at men to take action in their communities to reduce and eradicate gender-based violence forever. We did this as an alcohol company for two reasons. The first is that we believe passionately in the responsible use of alcohol, and therefore some men who, after abusing our product, are known to abuse women, and we say those men don't belong on our team, and we want the silent majority of men out there to come in and action and stop those men from committing these atrocities. Now, In the No Excuse campaign, we have, over the last two years, developed two flagship programs. The first flagship program I'll talk a bit about later is called Champions for Change. No Excuse Champions for Change, and that's an on-the-ground program where we work with men in communities across South Africa to become advocates for change in society against gender-based violence. And um, calling Black Label is a big brand. So will the policy be implemented worldwide? It will be. It certainly is going to be implemented across AB of Africa, which is where we are employed. So it's the whole of Africa. It's not just South Africa. The whole of Africa, um, where AB Inbev operates in, I guess, a dozen countries are going to implement this policy as of yesterday. It's also a very good opportunity for other corporates across Africa to take this policy. We're saying this policy is completely open source. Any company who wants to adopt it can come speak to us. We will make the right people available and they can adopt this policy in their own in their own companies. So we are in the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. So what's Carling Black Label or SAB doing to campaign or bring awareness to everyone out there about the violence that's happening in South Africa? That's a great question. And, you know, we believe at Carling but also at, at SAB that we need 365 days of activism, not just 16 days. We believe that this is mm. an issue that must be addressed by men. And therefore, our main program is our Champions for Change program. This is the on-the-ground program that we are running across all the provinces of South Africa. It entails working with local football associations, taverns, and the FET colleges. And from that, we recruit up to 100 men who we train as Champions for Change. These men then go back into their communities and are equipped with the skills to take action against gender-based violence in their community. So far, we have reached 30,000 people with this program. 
um, and we've created hundreds and hundreds of these champions. But um, next year, we, we are going to invest in the program further for the whole duration of the year because we firmly believe that prevention of gender-based violence is where our energies as calling must go because we don't want victims and we don't want perpetrators. And the best way of preventing gender-based violence is to get rid of toxic masculinity, hence our Champions for Change program. This program focuses on teaching men the six virtues of a champion man. And these virtues are life lessons that each man can live by to make their world better, to use their strength for good, to mentor their next generation, and also build bands of brothers of good around our country. So we're very excited about this program. It's an always-on program. It's one of those other ones within the No Excuse campaign where we say to corporates, our partner on this program is Father a Nation. It's a great NGO. Um, you can find all the details about the program on our website, noexcusesa.com. And we're making this program available to any other corporate to buy for their company or for communities in which they operate. Next year, we're buying two programs for our staff to go on, as well as four others around the country. And we're saying to other corporates, come, guys. We've got this program. Why don't you invest it either with your staff or, co- or communities in which you operate? And let's all work together to work on preventing gender-based violence forever so that we never have victims in the first place. Still on that topic, do you think it's important for other corporates to adopt or establish their own domestic violence policies? Absolutely. I do think this is one thing we've learned in this, in this process as, as a No Excuse campaign is that the stigma of domestic violence is one of the reasons that it's underreported and one of the reasons that women, mainly women who are victims, feel unsupported. Now, for corporates to come out and say, listen, if you are a victim of this terrible trauma, we will support you as we will support you if you're a victim of, of other traumas such as surgery or, or bereavement, I think is an extremely positive step forward because both it gives, in the short term, victims the support. And, you know, as a company and as a country, Everyone is economically and financially challenged. They reckon that gender-based violence has this enormous cost on our economy because women primarily stay away from work but also have to spend money on treatment. What we're saying is that let us as corporate support our support victims if they do arise. In the short term, it's a good thing for victim support. In the long term, I think it will destigmatize domestic violence, which is, again, one way of changing behavior. And that was Grant Pereira, director of Carling Black Label, on the line talking to Lebuchang Mabange. Due diligence is a fundamental to sound practice, and yet so many companies overlook this fact with grave consequences. Just a few years ago, the only security company, uh, the only security a company needed to worry about, uh, concerned physical measures. These measures could be easily quantified and reviewed. However, with the steady online migration and greater emphasis and reliance on data, cybersecurity is gaining prominence, which means that due diligence is becoming increasingly important too. Chief Executive Officer at Africa Forensics and Cyber, David Loxton, explains. Due diligence is, is it's, a very, it's a very broad concept for doing a check, almost like an audit, on various aspects of a business. So that could be the checking the credentials of potential employees, it could be checking the balance sheet of a company that you're thinking of acquiring. It could be checking the IT systems. So it, it's you know, various checks on various aspects of a business for a particular purpose. Essentially, it's to minimize risk 
that, that that's what a due diligence is for, to so minimize risk. So simple example, if you're thinking of employing someone, you don't want to employ a fraudster or someone that's going to come in and steal from you, so you'll do a proper check on that particular individual, do background checks, check that their CV is in fact correct, that they have done what they claim to have done, they've got the degrees they claim to have, etc. So that's a due diligence on a potential employee. Then if you're thinking of buying a company, you want to make certain that when they present financials to you, that they're not presenting incorrect financials, you know, over, overvaluing their company. So you'll send in a team of accountants to actually analyze those and say, yeah, these figures are correct or no, there's a problem. So that essentially is what a due diligence is about. Now, in terms of companies, if, if they don't do this, what essentially happens if you fail to do this when you're acquiring a company? What are the negative implications? Well, it can be a very, very um, radical negative consequences. Take, again, the simple example I gave, that you're thinking of acquiring a business, they present their balance sheets and financial statements to you, and it looks like a highly profitable business. You then buy the company, let, let's say it's valued at 50 million, so you spend 50 million and you take it over, and then six months later you find that, in fact, those financial statements were incorrect. They had a second set of books which they'd hidden from you, and the company's actually running at a loss. So you've now paid far more for a company than you should have. So that, that's just a very, very simplistic example of how it can um, impact on you. You know, furthermore, if you don't do a proper due diligence purchasing a company on things like number of employees, you could find that you take over employees that you weren't aware of. You know, the, the, the company tells you we've got the following employees on our books, 20 of them, and then you don't do your due diligence, you accept it at face value, you then move in on the first of your new ownership, and you find oh, <coughs> there are not 20 employees, there's 50 employees, and you now got to actually start paying salaries for 50 people instead of 20. So those are very simplistic examples that illustrates the point that I'm making that can be very negatively impacted by not doing a, a due diligence. In terms of the department that's responsible for this, is this for only for the legal department or should you as a business owner try and get through these nitty-gritties? Different businesses will structure this under different entities. It would certainly form part of the risk component. So wherever risks, it would reside there. And legal is obviously one of the components of managing a risk. We've got to ensure legal compliance. But generally, a due diligence won't be narrowly focused. It will be quite broad. You'll have a team made up of different specialists. So it will be a multidisciplinary team made up of IT specialists, HR specialists. You'd have commercial law specialists as well and accountants. So you'd have all these different specialist skills being brought on board for various aspects of the due diligence. But in, a, uh, I think, a succinct way, it would reside under the risk component of a business. In terms of companies that we've seen falling into this trap, what can be done after you realize that, well, I did not uh, do proper due diligence and now I have these challenges facing me? What can be done to try and correct these challenges? You'd obviously have legal recourse. You know, so if you've been misled in the purchase process that you people have deliberately withheld relevant information from you or that presented incorrect financials, you would then be able to unscramble that egg. But the challenge would be that's a long-winded process. It can be a lengthy process and it will cost you. You know, you have to pay lawyers to unravel this. And, of course, that assumes that the people you purchase from are still around, have something to, to in case you get judgment against them. So 
whilst you do have legal recourse, and any lawyer will tell you that it often that's not worth the paper it's written on because uh, you might have no remedy. But uh, so what I'm saying is, in direct answer to your question, yes, you will have recourse in the sense that you, you would probably be able to unscramble that egg on the basis of misrepresentations, fraudulent or otherwise. But it's going to be a lengthy process, time-consuming, and in the meantime, you've got a business that you're trying to manage, what's and all. So in short, one must actually try and deal with this before you get to a point where you must actually now try and have these implications and challenges now at the end and try to resolve them. Absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's, that's the point I'm making. Is that It's far better to spend money up front to minimize your risk and to try and undo it afterwards and you know, all the negative connotations of that. So absolutely do your due diligence long before you finalize any transaction. And that was David Loxton, CEO at Africa Forensics and Cyber, on the line talking to Tutongobeni. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Now it's time for your economics news. Here's Tracy Boomgod. Thank you, Samora. Zimbabwe President Emerson Mnangagwa's government will scrap its plan to remove grain subsidies next year, a move it says will protect impoverished citizens from rising food prices. Zimbabwe is experiencing its worst economic crisis in a decade, marked by soaring inflation and shortages of food, fuel, medicines and electricity. Half of Zimbabwe's population needs food aid after a devastating drought. Month-on-month inflation stands at a four-month high of 38.75%. The removal of the subsidy would have almost doubled the price of grain. South African power utility Eskom has reported another loss for the full year, but posted a modest profit in its interim results. Eskom's acting CEO, Jabu Mabuza, says the utility still faces many challenges, but progress has been made in some places. Mabuza also warned of the huge municipal debt that Eskom is absorbing. Soweto's outstanding debt is at almost $2 billion. Eskom board chairperson Mabuza says the power utility requires a cost-effective tariff increase and it is therefore launching a high-court challenge of the energy regulator's determination, which amounts to a tariff increase of around 8%. 
The power utilities challenge could lead to a tariff increase of around 16%. Mabuza also says Eskom expects to announce a similar loss in March 2020 as last year. Though the government has pledged its support, it does go without saying that Eskom requires a cost-reflective tariff increase. It is for this reason that ESCOM is challenging NASA's uh, recent tariff decisions in the High Court. We are in the High Court pleading for tariff increase that is consistent with the multi-year price determination methodology. South African digital banking service Time Bank has signed up one million customers since it launched less than eight months ago. Patrice Motsepe, majority shareholder in the bank, says Time Bank is a product of local success. He says the reason for the great achievement is mainly due to the bank's competitive pricing and world-class service. CEO at Time Bank, Tariq Kiran, believes the bank is one of the three fastest-growing digital banks in the world. The bank has added unsecured lending and is busy working on products for small businesses. Concerns have increased among citizens and business owners in Lebanon about their bank savings. That's despite government assurances that they are safe from any financial crisis that could hit the Lebanese economy. Banks recently set limits for withdrawals of U.S. dollars and other currencies, among other measures. The actions are aimed at limiting capital flight. Protests across the country since last month have added to pressures in the financial system. Many importers are unable to bring in goods due to forced-up prices and increased fears of financial collapse. Many businesses have shared jobs or slashed salaries and moved workers on to part-time. The U.S. dollar is trading at 360.96 Nigerian Naira, 10.73 Botswana Pula, at 101.36 Kenyan Shilling and at 14.60 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.24 Brazilian hail, 63.95 Russian ruble, 71.14 Indian rupee, 7.02 Chinese yuan, and at 14.76 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,457 and platinum at $892 per ounce, while Brent crude oil is at $63.65 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And now it's time for your latest sport. Here's Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with cricket news. 
Interim team director Enoch Nkwe will be in charge of the Proteus for the Test Series against England starting next month. Cricket South Africa Head of Media and Communications Tamim Tembo said this afternoon. Mtembo says former first-class cricketer Nkwe would remain in his interim director role together with the support staff who oversaw a humiliating 3-0 Test Series defeat in India last month. Nkwe's appointment on the back of a successful debut season as a French as a coach was a surprise in view of his lack of international experience, either as a player or a coach. South African Proteus netball team assistant coach Dumisani Chauke says they will use the upcoming test series against England to prepare for the Vitality Cup in England next year. The Vitality Cup in January will feature England, Jamaica and New Zealand. The Proteus will play against England tomorrow, Saturday and Sunday in Velodrome in Belleville, Cape Town. SA recently won the African Champs in Cape Town recently. Well, um, Africa Champs gave us an opportunity to see what we still have in stock and also just test a bit of depth as you would have seen them. Um, we didn't have Mareka who retired. Uh, we didn't have Aaron who just recently retired. We didn't have Carla who was still on a break. We didn't have Pumza who was injured. We didn't have Inamari who was injured. So that's five experienced top players that we didn't have available. And that gives us an opportunity to look at the youngsters coming up and to see who's next going forward. Um, if, well, going into England, um, we do have Pumza back. We do have Inamari back. It's an opportunity, um, I guess, for us to solidify our combinations, uh, seeing that we won't have time with the girls until we leave for the Vitality Cup in England in January. So this will form like preparations for that. Although when we get that side, we'll be preparing. In football news, Liverpool manager Jürgen Klopp faces an anxious wait to discover the extent of the injury suffered by his key midfielder Fabinho in last night's one-all Champions League draw with Napoli. The Brazilian holding midfielder hobbled off in the 19th minute with an ankle injury, being replaced by Dutchman Georgino Wajinam. Uh, no, no, I don't know. He has pain, so that's not good. So, and he couldn't obviously continue, and he's really hard hard one um, couldn't continue so yeah I, I don't I don't want to say that I what I expect because I hope uh, in a moment that it's not that it's not that serious but we know more maybe tomorrow maybe the day after tomorrow we'll see Liverpool are used to making life difficult for themselves Admitted Klopp as one all draw with Napoli leaves the European champions with work to do to reach the Champions League last 16. Yes, obviously I struggle when I play Napoli. Sorry for that. Um, that depends up, but it's more about um, how good they are. So that's how it is. And um, nevertheless, last year we went through. We won here, so that was the most important thing. <clears throat> this year we have to um, we have to fight until the last group. Um, they have to group, and that was exactly the same what we had to do last year. So it's not not really new for us. Mauritius have set a target to try and get out of the group stages and compete in their first semi-final in this age category. The Baby Club M has once again placed its trust in coaches Dennis Doki and Kesley Levrai, who will have to the mission to allow the squad to aim high. Mauritius have been drawn in Group B at this year's championship with South Africa, Lesotho and Madagascar in the Under-20 Kosafa Cup. This is the second year in a row that the quadricolors will 
will be facing the South Africans. Mauritius will face South Africa on December the 5th at the Sunset Stadium. After this first outing, they will then play against Lesotho, an opponent they will feel they can match. In the final match in Group B, Mauritius will go head-to-head with Madagascar in a clash between two teams of the Indian Ocean. The tournament gets underway on December the 4th and concludes on December the 14th in Lusaka, Zambia. And finally in rugby news, Colin Sinjera will not be a part of the Shuja squad that travels out to the season opening leg of the World Rugby Sevens Series in Dubai next week as he is yet to hit the requisite fitness levels, according to technical director Paul Feeney. Injera picked up a shoulder injury during last month's Safari Sevens and cons- and consequently missed out on the Africa Sevens, but has since resumed training with the rest of the 18-man squad picked for the new season. For Dubai, Fini has stuck with the same personnel that did duty at the Africa Sevens a fortnight ago, with only addition being Dan Sikuta. For the Dubai campaign, they are in pool D and will face off with South Africa, England and Spain. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Itio Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. We're back again at 1900 hours Central African time. But should you have any comments on the show in the meantime, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus 27763003327 and you can tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Sabela Bainzika. We'll see.